Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Better Be Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 104th episode of the Nauticast titled The Last Samurai, an analysis of a Clash of Kings John 4 and 5 in which the Night's Watch arrives at the Fist of the First Men and John acquires yet another father figure, Corn Halfhand, who is a supreme badass. Oh my god, I'm so happy that we're here to be Corn <laughs> Halfhand. And thanks to his dog, John finds a very ordinary bundle whose contents aren't important at all and whose origin will in no way inspire a furious screaming match between us that will burn the Nauticast down. No, sir. None of that will be happening, I promise you. Yes, we regret to announce this is the last episode of the Nauticast <laughs> podcast <laughs> that you will ever actually About damn see. Time. So, As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Elder Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamas, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sosadelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soybe of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow, the Rainbow Commander of the Thades and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolute Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldiver, the waiter for T Wow. A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneras of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Seanwell the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexandra of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, and our two newest members of the Small Council. That's right, you heard that right, two newest members of the Small Council. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, and Sir Veor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes. Thank you, Council, very much, and welcome to our new Small Council members. Thank you to all our counselors, as always, and welcome to Sir Josh and Surveyor. Good to know that the North will have bounty hunters and parties. Sounds like a fun time up in the North from now on. That's good to know. Our spoiler wings, we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Guilty Undertaker, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, On the subject of theories, do you still think that Danny, John, and Tyrion will fly beyond the curtain on Dragonback for a final showdown with whatever's there in order to defeat the others? I am more skeptical after Season 8. And yeah, you know, the Heart of Winter is obviously the icy equivalent to Ashai, that's the fire equivalent. And just like Ashai, it was hinted at and maybe part of the, the game for Danny early on, but ultimately... We won't be going there in this series, and we might see it through Melisandre's eyes, judging from what George has said. I'm, the Heart of Winter feels like it might be that way to me now. Like, maybe we won't go there directly, but through Bran's chapters, we'll get a we'll get a better look at it. What do you think? 
George has said that we will go farther north than we've ever gone before in the winds of winter. We've said that a couple times in the Not A Cast podcast now. I do think that this is extremely unlikely that we're going to have some sort of major battle occurring in the far north in the heart of winter. And I want to talk to you guys, direct your attention to a passage in Fire and Blood where Queen Alicene takes her dragon, tries to fly north of the wall, cannot get north of the wall. And she talks, she writes a letter back to her husband stating that she tried as best as she possibly could to get that dragon to go north, but it did not want to cross the wall which to me indicates that there is some sort of magical war that prevents dragons and other mystical, magical beings from crossing the wall. Something that we find with the uh, the character of Cold Hands, who cannot cross south of the wall because it is warded, as he states in A Storm of Swords and also in A Dance of Dragons, I believe. So yes, I am with you there. I don't think we're going to be seeing a final showdown on Dragon Back at the Heart of Winter. I think more likely George may have kind of like, you know fudged a little bit and now with Danny's dream happening in the Storm of Swords it's possible we could see the final confrontation taking place at the Trident or it could be at Winterfell as was portrayed in the show I'm fine with either of those possibilities I tend to lean towards Winterfell just because well one sh- one one form of canon has it occurring at Winterfell and that's that's enough for me to think that the name itself and the show canon helps to indicate that the final confrontation will take place at Winterfell although I'd be ha- unhappy if it took place at the Trident Very well said, sir. Across the board. Definitely agreed. So thank you, Guilty Undertaker, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sword Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get 25 bonus episodes, six Fever Dream episodes, show notes, access to our exclusive Slack, and more. If you guys are patrons and you guys should know this, you've been paying, to, paying attention to social media today, our voting for our next Patreon-only episode is in full swing. So if you listen or watch this episode before Friday at noon and you're a patron, come vote over at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-F to choose our next Patreon-only episode that we will be forced to do at gunpoint because we are believers in democracy. We will abide by the will of the people in choosing our episode subject for this month. But... Enough about Patreon for now. Let's turn our attention to Jon Snow. When we last checked in with Jon, he had a lovely time at Craster's remote ski lodge. But sadly, he had to get back to hiking with the boys to go meet up with some friends in the mountains. Let's see what happens to Jon in this analysis of A Clash of Kings, Jon 4 and 5. The Night's Watch arrives within sight of a hill, and boy, is this hill going to be important for their narrative going forward. The Wildlings called it the Fist of the First Men, Ranger said. Did look like a fist, John thought, punching up through the earth and wood, its bare brown slopes knuckled with stone. John's at the front of the column of rangers with the high officers and with the good LC, but Ghost wasn't being wasn't about being tied down. He runs off twice with John whistling him back reluctantly. When he ran off a third time, Mormont tells John just to, you know, let him go, let him go, can't hold that wolf back anymore. <clears throat> what was I? Oh yeah, the Night's Watch climbs the steep stony summit with John noticing a chest high wall of rocks. They then circle the hill until they find a wide enough gap to let the horses in. Mormont thinks this is good ground to be on while they wait for corn half hand. The LC then climbs down and John takes in the view. The views atop the hill were bracing. Yet it was the ring wall that drew John's eye. The weathered gray stones with their white patches of lichen, their beards of gray moss. It was said that the fist had been a ring fort of the first men of the Dawn Age. An old place and strong, Thorin Smallwood said. Bloodraven, <clears throat> Mormont's raven, starts being a dick and screams, Ode, 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 at Mormont, which, Mr. Bloodraven, I should really point out to you that you're no spring chicken either. Gior tells the bird to shut up, but John notices that Mormont is looking a bit old and tired. This whole march was taking its toll on the good L.C. 
Thorin says that this place is easily defendable, but John points out that it's kind of a long climb to get water from the stream below. Thorin then mocks John for being weak or some shit because Thorin's just a fucking dick in this chapter. So Mormont says they'll haul water up the hill and John shuts up and notices all the black tents going up on the hill. Mormont then orders the wall defenses improved and John to get to work on the LC's tent. After putting up the tent, John heads down the hill to try and find Ghost and the direwolf suddenly shows up all silent-like. John tries to direct Ghost back up the hill, but the direwolf balks at the ring wall. John tries then dragging Ghost through the wall, but he was too strong. He asks what's wrong with Ghost before letting the direwolf go and, quote, hunt. They ought to be safe here. The hill offered commanding views and the slopes were precipitous to the north and west and only slightly more gentle to the east. Yet, as the dusk deepened and the darkness seeped into the hollows between the trees, John's sense of foreboding grew. This is the haunted forest, he told himself. Maybe there are ghosts here. The spirits of the first men. This was their place once. John goes for a look around, feeling safe at the height, but scared at the haunted forest around the hill. Then he snaps back and says, there's no such thing as ghosts, and then, byronic hero that he is, watches the sun set while he broods. Then John climbs onto the highest rocks, and we're onto a long description of scenery, which is really, it's terrific stuff, but I'll skip most of it to save on for time, because we're still in the first of two chapters here. But I do love this scene, which I will then, which I will depict here. When the wind blew, he could hear the creak and groan of branches older than he was. A thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment, the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. Just lovely stuff. That's just good writing on Trish's part. But then Samuel arrives below and calls out to him. How's John doing? Fine, Sam. How are you? Sam is doing really well. Actually, no shit. No shit. And anyways, they're all going to be sticking here at the fist of the first men for a little while until Corrin arrives. By the way, think any battles were fought here, Sam asks? Definitely, John replies. John then tells Sam he should send a raven back to Castle Black, and Sam says he wishes he could be a raven. John smiles at that, and they go walk about the camp as the stars come out overhead, before John excuses himself to go see Mormont. Arriving back at Mormont's tent, John gets immediately told to bring some hot wine for the boys, aka the High Command of the Night's Watch. So John, acting like a bit of like a fraternity pledge, gets to work heating the wine up in a kettle, making sure not to boil it while he drops some eaves on the High Command, debating their next steps. And I'm just going to bullet point this for brevity's sake. We'll cover this more in the depth portion. Malderlock wants to advance up the giant scur- st- up the giant stair or the scurling pass to take the wildlings unawares. Otten Withers thinks it's a stupid fucking idea. Mormont doesn't want to go that way unless he absolutely has to. He wants to stay put at the fist of the first men. Thorin Smallwood wants to go arranging, but Mormont orders him to stay south of the river. Thorin doesn't like this. Strategy session complete. John enters the tent and asks if Mormont wants his dinner. He would, but uh, hey, did Ghost return and bring some fresh meat? Nope, sorry, meat's not back on the menu tonight. Mormont then asks what John thinks of his plan, and John tries to dodge as he's only here to serve the Lord Commander. But Mormont presses him. So... John says he's not sure why the LC is keeping the rangers close instead of searching for Benjamin Stark. Ah, well, you see, if Benjamin is alive, he's going to follow the trail that the Night's Watch left for him. Yes, said John, but what if... He's dead? Mormon asked, not unkindly. John nodded reluctantly. Dead, the raven said. Dead, dead. He may come to us anyway, the old bear said, as author did, and Jay for flowers. I dread that as much as you, John, but we must admit that it's a possibility. Mormont then says he's not hungry after all and dismisses John to get some rest. So John gathers the things up and realizes that he's hungry. He heads over to a fire and finds Dolores Ed, Grand and Hake gathered around the fire, listening to Dywin talk about his fear of the woods and how he wouldn't want to be out ranging in the haunted forest tonight. You see, Dywin can smell the quote, cold out in the forest. And while the others mock Dywin saying there's no smell like cold, John disagrees. There is a smell like cold, thought John, remembering the night in the Lord Commander's chambers. It smells like death. 
Suddenly, John wasn't hungry anymore. John heads out into the night with the cold winds rising. He takes the leftover of wine to a fire, reheats, and starts flexing his fingers, and then he hears the howling of wolves. And then John sees red eyes staring at him from across the fire. Don't worry, it's ghost guys. I know you were really worried there. Ghost, ghost sniffs around the fire with the manic, entry, the manic energy that leads John to believe that Ghost isn't hungry. And right there, John starts to get really worried about the possibility he's in a similar situation as he was back in A Game of Thrones with Arthur creeping up the stairs to Mormont's chambers. Ghost starts off and John gives chase to the direwolf. John encounters a man standing by a fire on watch, which... <laughs> You guys never like, oh my God, you guys are the, this is the worst watchman in the entire Night's Watch. I swear to God. Uh, John tells the man that he's going to get water for the LC and the watcher, literally a man with rocks for brains, like, yeah, sure, whatever. Are you actually a Night's Watchman? I don't care. I'm just going to stand here by the fire. So John follows Ghost down the hill, catching glimpses of him, losing him, catching sight of him, chasing, chasing, chasing. There's a lot of this John chases Ghost and I'm skipping over again because we're doing two chapters this week and we're not even to the second chapter yet until John sees Ghost digging in the ground besides a fallen tree. So he goes to investigate. The soil was loose, sandy. John pulled it out by the fistful. There were no stones, no roots. Whatever was here had been put here recently. Two feet down, his fingers touched cloth. He had been expecting a corpse, fearing a corpse. But this was something else. He pushed against the fabric and felt small, hard shapes beneath, unyielding. There was no smell, no sign of grave worms. Ghost backed off and sat on his haunches, watching. John digs into the earth and retrieves the cloth bundle from the ground. He pulls out his dagger and cuts into it, and knives, arrowheads, and spearheads fall out. John picks up a handful and finds razor-sharp black daggers. Dragonglass. John wonders whether Ghost had dug up buried treasure from the first men, but then John notices something else under the dragonglass. Beneath the dragonglass was an old war horn, made from Arak's horn and banded in bronze. John shook the dirt from inside it, and a stream of arrowheads fell out. He let them fall and pulled up a corner of the cloth the weapons had been wrapped in, rubbing it between his fingers. Good wool, thick, a double weave, damp but not rotted. It could not have been long in the ground, and it was dark. He seized a handful and pulled it close to the torch. Not dark, black. Even before John stood and shook it out, he knew what he had, the black cloak of a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. A few weeks later, a horn is blowing, and John is reaching for Longclaw, wondering if another blast of the horn is coming. John feels as if the whole hill is holding its breath for that blast, but it never comes. Everyone grins at each other, for now, you know, we're not that far away from the, we'll see. And Mormont emerges from his tent, asking if it was only one blast. Yes, sir, one blast. Brothers returning. Mormont says it's the half-hand, and he wants to go see him immediately, and John agrees, thinking that the men from the shower tower should have arrived days ago. John thinks back to everyone, wondering about whether Corrin would show up and what they should do. Again, we're going to go with bullet points here. Sir Odden Withers wants to retreat back to Castle Black. Sir Mallory Locke wanted to move towards the shadow tower and pick up Corrin's trail. Thorin Smallwood wanted to push into the mountains and go against Mance, mounted and his wolves among sheep. Otten thinks this is a dumb fucking plan and they would be outnumbered and get destroyed by Mance. Long story short, everyone disagrees and no decisions are made. But now that Corrin was here, things went better. Now they can make a decision and come to battle soon. John heads down a hill and gives Duller said something to complain about. He encounters Samo and Sam asks if the blast meant the engine returned. Sadly, no. It's only men from the it's only men from the Shadow Tower, John said. It was growing harder to cling to the hope of Benjamin Stark's safe return. The cloak he had found beneath the fist could well have belonged to his uncle or one of his men. Even the old bear admitted as much, though why they would have buried it there wrapped around a cache of dragon glass, no one could say. John bids Samadu and heads down to the ring wall. He finds men moving the spikes aside to let Corrin's men through, and then he sees riders come through all in leather and armor and fur with heavy beards. And a lot of them were wounded. 
not good, not good at all. But then some good news rides through the opening. And look, I've been summarizing a lot of things in this chapter, but full fucking paragraph here because Corrin Halfhand deserves this. John knew Corrin Halfhand the instant he saw him, though they had never met. The big ranger was half a legend in the watch, a man of slow words and swift action, tall and straight as a spear, long-limbed and solemn. Unlike his men, he was clean-shaven. His hair fell from beneath his helm, and heavy braid touched with hoarfrost and the blacks he wore, so faded that they might have been grays. Only thumb and forefinger remained on the hand that held the reins. The other fingers had been sheared off catching a wildling's axe that would have otherwise split his skull. It was told that he had thrust his maimed fist into the face of the axeman, so the blood spurred into his eyes and slew him while he was blind. Since that day, the wildlings beyond the wall had known no foe more implacable. Guys, I don't know about you, but my loins are stirring. Ah, can't help it. So moist. John tells Corrin that Mormont wants to see him, and Corrin says his boys are hungry. Get him fed. Also, John, you look like your dad, Ned. John asks if Corrin knew Ned, and yes, Corrin did, as well as Lord Rickard Stark. Corrin asks of the rumors about John having a direwolf for true, and yes, the true rumors are indeed true. They make their way up the hill and find Dullers Ed making breakfast and Mormont in his camp chair. Mormont asks what took them so long, and Corrin says that they ran into trouble. Alfin Crowkiller scouting the wall. They fought Alfin, and Alfin is kill, but they lost four of their own with another dozen wounded. Oh, and they also tortured one of the surviving wildlings and got some valuable intel, but they should talk about it inside Mormont's tent. So, Corrin and Mormont go into the tent and leave John to hang out with Dullers Ed. The steward then begins gloomily talking another top five quote by Dullers Ed here. Ed stood over his kettle, swishing the eggs about with a spoon. I envy those eggs, he said. I could do with a bit of boiling now. If the kettle were larger, I might jump in. Though I would sooner were wine than water. There are worse things to die than warm and drunk. I knew a brother, drowned himself in wine once. It was a poor vintage, though, and his corpse did not improve it. You drank the wine? John asked. It's an awful thing to find a brother Ted. You'd have need of a drink as well, Lord Snow. <laughs> Love it. Oh, God. That is, the, that is the best. John starts poking the fire with a stick, wondering over why Corn Halfhand seems so gloomy. They killed Alfred, they killed Alfred Crow Killer. Seems kind of like a victory, right? Yeah, it should seem like that way. Then John remembers wandering around the camp and the night before and overhearing Lark the Sisterman and Chet bitching about being up here on the Fist of the First Men and how they would all die. And maybe they're not going to listen to any orders sending them up the Frost Fangs. But then one of Chet's hounds growled and John beats feet as so as not to be found out, knowing that he wasn't meant to hear any of them. He's also not going to tell Bormont about Chet and Lark because he's not a snitch. Besides, it's just empty talk, right? Right? No, wrong. Anyways, John has now armed himself with one of the dragon glass daggers. He slips it out and studies it, thinking that it was buried there for a reason. So John had made daggers for Gren and had... and. So John had made daggers for Gwen and one for the LC. Oh, and John had taken the Warhorn and given it a little too because when you have a potentially magical horn, you just give it a little blow, right, guys? Like, oh my God, like Christ, you didn't bring the fucking wall down, John. Oh, anyways, breakfast is done and Ed asks whether he or John should bring the breakfast in and John says he wants to do it. So he enters and overhears Corrin talking about Rattleshirt, the Weeper, and all the wildling chiefs, Wargs, Mammoths, and every wildling. Though John doesn't hear the context, Mormont says that the wall must be warned and that the king should hear the news too. Corrin bites into an egg and states that the best hope lies with the Starks. Mormont agrees and then grabs up a few maps. John deciphers the... John deciphers that Mormont is attempting to determine where the Wildlings will strike, and that's pretty important as only three of the 17 castles on the wall are presently manned. 
Mormont idealistically puts in that Alistair Thorne will bring back more men for the wall and man Greyguard and Longbarrow, which, yeah, extremely optimistic thinking on Mormont's part, I know. The two men talk about roving patrols manning other castles, then they talk about whether they should strike with their cavalry force. And then the discussion turns to how do they get through the wall. They'll probably go through one of the gates or use the ropes to climb the walls, says Mormont. A breach, Corrin said. Mormont's head came up sharply. What? They do not plan to climb the wall nor burrow beneath it, my lord. They plan to break it. The wall is 700 feet high and so thick at the base that it would take 100 men a year to cut through it with picks and axes. Even so, Mormont plucked at his beard, frowning. How? How else? Sorcery. Besides, why else would Mance head up to the Frostfangs? They were looking for something. Some sort of sorceress implement to bring down the wall. There was no other reason they would go up into the mountains. That's what their tortured captives said anyways. They were looking for some power. But what? As for that, Corrin proposes that they scout out the wildlings and find out what's going on with them, but Mormont is loath to risk more men to die up in the mountains on a dangerous ranging. We can only die. Why else would we don these black cloaks but to die in defense of the realm? I would send 15 men in three parties of five, one to pump the milk water, one the Skirling Pass, one to climb the giant stair, Jarman Buckwell, Thorin Smallwood, and myself to command, to learn what waits in those mountains. Mormont relents and sees no other choice. But what if they don't come back? Well, someone will come down from the Frost Fangs. Whether it's the Rangers or Mance Raider, Mormont's Rangers are well positioned to intercept Mance. Besides, the Fist is a strong spot to hold out against. Not that strong, said Mormont. Be like we all die then. Our dying will buy us time for our brothers on the wall. Time to garrison the empty castles and freeze shut the gates. Time to summon lords and kings to their aid. Time to hone their axes and repair their catapults. Our lives will be coined well spent, Corrin says. God, you just love the way that Corrin talks in these chapters. It's so, so good. Bloodraven starts screaming the lyrics to the Avid Brothers' Die, 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 Die song, but Mormont ignores the Raven and asks Corn to choose his men for the ranging. Corn half-hand turned his head. His eyes met John's and held them for a long moment. Very well. I choose Jon Snow. Mormont starts to protest that Duller's Ed was a better pick, but Corn doesn't want Ed. He wants John, who follows the old gods. The gods were strong beyond the wall, so Mormont turns to John and asks what John wants to do. To go, he said at once. The old man smiled sadly. <laughs> I thought it might be. Dawn had broken when John stepped from the tent beside Corrin Halfhand. The wind swirled around them, stirring their black cloaks and sending a scatter of red cinders flying from the fire. We ride at noon, the nip ranger told him. Best find that wolf of yours. And that is Akash Kings, John 4 and 5. Lots of setup, lots of buildup, and boy, am I now ready to get to John's adventures in the balance here to Clash of Kings, one of my favorite parts of the just all the Song of Ice and Fire. But what did you think of this chapter, Abbott? So, as we've said, John's storyline in A Clash of Kings really ramps up in excitement and overall quality once he gets into the Frostfangs with Corrin Halfhand and his crew. And we're not quite there yet. John 4 and 5 taken together speak to both the weaknesses and strengths of John's chapters in this book. On the one hand, it is starting to become clear that the Night's Watch is going to spend this whole book on the trail of interesting things, and that the interesting things themselves won't show up until the next book. There's more atmosphere here than plot progression or character development. That said, there's nothing wrong with lingering in an atmosphere if it's well done, and the atmosphere on the Fist of the First Men is wonderfully spooky. On reread, I realized what a perfect backdrop this is for our introduction to Corrin Halfhand, because like the Fist, he is a source of reassuring strength, but also kind of scary. Yeah, he is kind of scary, but he's also like that kind of guy who shows up and takes charge of things and hopefully directs the watch in the right direction, right? We'll see. As we know, though, George is also weaving multiple genres into A Song of Ice and Fire, nor detective, fantasy, action, mafia, horror, but 
not sci-fi. George has been very explicit about that. It's not sci-fi, guys. The genre I see in, in uh, the, the genre rather I see in John's Clash storyline is very much action adventure with dashes of mystery and fantasy tossed in too. And I really appreciate on reread. I mean, after, especially after Arya Seven and Sansa Three, the way we did it for this chapter order. And it's not that I found the last two episodes and last two chapters we covered a slog. Far from it. They are really vital in understanding the themes that George communicates. It's just that. They're really heavy chapters, man. I mean, my emotions range from sad to sickened to outraged to angry, and that was a lot. Getting into these two John chapters is a real nice reprieve from all that. And I mean, I seeped over a lot of it in my synopsis, but all the scenery, it's kind of Lord of the Rings-esque. I mean, I feel like I'm on a grand adventure with John and his friends to save Benjen Stark. No, it's to find and defeat the others. No, it's actually to defeat Mance Raider. Oh, wait. Okay, fine. We can, I think we can sit on this. We're going to set up shop at the Fist of the First Men. That's what we're here to do. And up until this point, we have been on the trail of Waymar Royce and company from the prologue to A Game of Thrones. But now, we are officially further north than we've ever been before. And that's both exciting and frightening for the reader. And John shares the same spirit. It's the wonder of discovery, slowly sapped away by a sense of dread. And I think this really comes through when you compare how The Fist is written relative to White Tree and Craster's Keep from the previous John chapters. On the one hand, our initial impression of The Fist is one of strength. The name alone sounds strong. A giant fist of stone, an ancient fortress. We'll be safe here. The senior officers of the Night's Watch are reassured by the defensive position offered by the Hill, so much so that you can see all their plans reforming around it. Elsie Mormont immediately declares it good ground and says that they will await Corn Halfhand and his Shadow Tower men here. Sensible enough, so far. But the Old Guard's dedication to their conventional wisdom ends up contributing to the mission creep we'll discuss later on. Right away, Thorne Smallwood's snotty attitude toward John is a tip-off that the leadership is mismanaging things. John's not lazy, you sanctimonious <laughs> prick. He's raising a very legitimate concern, the lack of easy access to water. Now, Mormont does address his concerns in a somewhat more substantive way, but it is still a bad sign about the mindset pervasive in Watch leadership, and John feels more silenced than actually reassured. Because what John is getting at is a larger issue than water. What he's getting at is the same issue he got at in Crestor's Keep. It's whether the fist as a whole is actually as reliable a defensive position as it seems. After all, it's abandoned, just like White Tree and the other villages. If it's so strong a fortress, why isn't anyone here? Even if Mance doesn't think it worth holding because he wants to gather all his resources together on the Frostfangs, why are there no renegades like Craster taking advantage of the defenses? And what John realizes at a level he can't quite articulate is that no one is here because these defenses are not, in fact, adequate against what is really waiting for them up here. His superiors in the watch, as we will again discuss later in the episode, insist on seeing their mission purely through the lens of stopping Mance Raider. In that light, the fist makes some sense as a defensive position. But it makes no sense at all as a defensive position against the others and the army of the dead. That's what's waiting for them up here. That's why Mance didn't leave anyone behind. That's what John knows the Night's Watch is still not ready to face. And that's why George writes The Fist of the First Men as he does in these chapters, with such an eerie, alien atmosphere, with such palpable dread. The Fist just can't compare to Winterfell, which is the true Fist of the First Men. And as Stephen Atwell has argued, Winterfell might have been designed partially in reaction to the failure hmm. of the Fist's fortifications to stop the other's onslaught. But Winterfell, sadly, is on the other side of the wall. The Night's Watch is deep in enemy territory, and only John seems to remember who the enemy really is. 
It reminds me of one of my favorite show-only scenes, on the fifth of the First Men, in which Sam is talking wistfully about the First Men who once held this fort, and John replies, I think they were afraid. I think they came here to get away from something. And I don't think it worked. That perfectly sums up how L.C. Mormont's great ranging is going, and John already knows deep down how it's going to end for the Night's Watch. I want to also argue, too, that the Night's Watch High Command is a pretty good idea that they're in the wrong spot and they're not going to make it out in in the same form and fashion they came north with. Because I think, like, when I reading this chapter, I was, John Four especially, I, I see the High Command, like, trying to reassure themselves, assuaging their own doubts about the Fist of the First Men. As Mormont says, this is good ground, Thorn. We could scarce hope for better. And then Thorn says, those heights will be easy to defend. And then Mormont replies, yes, we could scarce hope for better. We're not like to find better ground, Mormont says. Like, you just got to say this is a good place to kind of defend. You don't have to, like, keep trying to defend, like, the fact that you're holding this ground over mm-hmm. and over and over again unless you have some significant internal doubts, both Thorin Smallwood and Elsie Mormont, about whether this is actually good ground to hold or not. And as it turns out, as we find out from the prologue from A Storm of Swords, as well as Samuel's first chapter, it ain't good ground to hold against the others and against the undead. And, you know, at some level, my sense is that the officers of the Night's Watch are all attempting to silence their own fears by overpraising the fist, says all the while letting the same fears that John overhears Chet and Lark voicing go and say it. Again, Chet and Lark are kind of the voices of reason in this chapter, which should be <laughs> saying something, because at least Chet mentions that there are worse things out beyond than the wildlings, which seemingly does not factor at all in what Mormon is thinking about. That being said, while we're here on the Fist of the First Men waiting to get annihilated by the others, let's talk a little bit about the concept of historical ring forts, because this was something that existed in especially European history. Ring forts were a defensive position and sometimes a defensive settlement even, positioned on the tops of hills or high ground. Ring forts are also can be found all over Northern Europe, but they are found most prominently in Ireland with as many as 50,000, I know 50,000 is a lot, constructed on the island between the Bronze Age and around 1000 CE. And if you're one of our patrons, and when we publish this episode of the show notes this upcoming Monday, you can see a picture of the ring fort that I found. I, I, I try to look for a picture that looked the most like the Fist of the First Men maybe look like. Uh, of course, this picture was taken in the summertime, not in the middle of winter, but I think you can get the idea pretty pretty, pretty easily. And as a defensive structure, a ring fort offered high ground and visibility of the surrounding terrain. They also obstructed a maneuver up to the high ground, but there were limitations as the Night's Watch is finding with the Fist of the First Men. For our purposes, most of the rainfall would run off the hillside and create streams and bodies of at the low ground of the Fist of the First Men as opposed to being up where the men are actually stationed and positioned. And this is exactly what John is pointing out, as you were pointing out. It's fine ground to defend by force of arms, but an enemy advancing up the hill is only one way of defeating the ring fort. Starving them out in a siege is another way, something we are still going to talk about a little bit later on. So I really like this idea that Winterfell and castles in general constructed as a more sure defense the others, and it does fit the sort of the historical model of ring forts gradually being replaced by stone castles a little bit before, but especially after 1000 AC. But John, John isn't the only one who has reservations about the Fist of the First Men. Ghost seems awfully fucking perturbed too, and his reasons are less related in my mind to whether the Fist is truly good ground that Mormon seems to think it is. It seems to me that Ghost's reservations are more rooted in the supernatural. Supernatural. I think you made a great point that it's in a sense they're like traveling back into the past. Like here's how we used to make our stand against the others and we don't anymore. And at the same time as going back into the past, we're going back into the world of the supernatural. Those two are often linked in A Song of Ice and Fire and fantasy in general. And one of the best examples of how George plays out the spooky atmosphere of the Fist of the First Men in these chapters is how he uses Ghost. John's direwolf has always been, well, a ghostly presence, but he's never been as frightening as he is in A Clash of Kings, John 4. 
His red eyes glare balefully out of the night. He's running around, acting all spooked like he did the night of the zombie attack at Castle Black, as John says to himself. Immediately, the spooky atmosphere is ramped up, and the reader isn't sure whether to be afraid of Ghost or afraid of something he knows about. John chases after his dog, being a good boy, and we're prepared for him to come under attack, but instead, Ghost leads him to buried treasure, X marks the spot. <laughs> and here again, we see the pattern of John's A Clash of Kings chapters, in which his fingertips just brush up in passing against the magical power that rules beyond the wall. A weirwood mouthful of skulls at White Tree in John 2, an empty sheepfold at Craster's Keep in John 3, and now dragon cl- dragonglass arrowheads and a humble little horn at the fist in John 4. These are signs and symbols of the monsters on the margins, to borrow your phrase about the others. And while George holds back on the White Walkers until the beginning of A Storm of Swords, he is showing us in A Clash of Kings a world permanently shaped by their presence, in which everything from the politics to the artifacts speaks to living on the doorstep of Death's domain. It's telling that John thinks at first that Ghost is digging up a grave, because that's kind of the feeling out here. Everything is rooted in death. We'll talk more about the specific properties of the objects John finds in the foreshadowing and theory sections of this episode, but suffice to say that they stand in for the Age of Wonder and Terror, in which mortal men rediscover the tools to reach up and grasp the stars, trying and failing to master death. What we see here in this bundle are the twinned elemental forces of ice and fire, which stand in for so much in the series, including John's birth parents, Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen, and that ultimately is what this bundle stands in for. Frozen fire wrapped up in a Night's Watch cloak, that's a perfect metaphor for our hero, Jon Snow. He found himself. He went up north and he found himself. Yeah, I mean, that's, that again, damn, dude. I mean, like, I remember when you did back in, in Catelyn's second chapter to Game of Thrones and you pointed out that the hot spring water flowing through the cold stones was a metaphor for Jon, you know, all the way back in 2018, we were doing our first few episodes. And again, I found myself floored by this catch. Of course, I read this before you guys actually were able to listen to this episode, but yeah, really, really well done, man. And just to add... Everything's enough- a metaphor for John. That's what it always comes back to in his in his story. You're seeing versions of the truth about him long before he realizes it. The the Song of Ice and Fire is actually all about Jon Snow. We can forget about all the other point of view characters. I know there'll be certain fans that will be happy uh-huh. to hear about that. Wanted to add like, just another little layer about this and to your excellent metaphor of the frozen fire as representative of Jon Stark and Targaryen heritage. I think we can also talk about Dragon Glass's representative of his identity as a regular old Night's Watchman, as well as someone who has the magic inside of him. As we know, Dragon Glass is based on real world obsidian slash volcanic glass, but in A Song of Ice and Fire, it has a magical twist, as George R. Martin talked about in a 2005 interview, in which he said, Obsidian is, of course, volcanic glass. It's formed by immense heat and pressure down in the earth. The dragons themselves are creatures of intense heat. I've given it magical characteristics that are, of course, real obsidian doesn't necessarily have. After all, we live in a world that has no magic. My world does have magic, so it's a little bit different. So if Dragonglass is a metaphor for John's identity, the magical elements that George R. R. Martin is embedding to the stone is also true for John. John is wearing the colors of the Night's Watchmen, black, or shall we say, obsidian. So it's the normal garb of the Night's Watchman, but he's also a little bit magical too. He has a mystical warging connection to his direwolf ghost, and if season A is indication, and I totally think it is, John will have a magical bond with one of Danny's dragons as well. Corn Halfhand, of course, takes his sweet time getting there, <laughs> and we'll, we'll find out why when he finally shows up. But yeah, a couple weeks go by, Corn Halfhand and the Shadow Tower men fail to show. The men start to get restive, and the officers go through their options. All they have to go on is Craster's intelligence, which puts Mance and his people high up in the Frostfangs, the mountains to the north of the Fist of the First Men. This presents the Watch with several obstacles. The most direct route into the mountains would be to follow the Milkwater, the river. 
but that would expose them to Mance's scouts, and any plan to fight Mance and the Frostfangs depends heavily on the element of surprise. There are passes through the mountains, the Giant Stair and the Skirling Pass, which could allow them to approach unseen, but the terrain and weather are extremely hazardous, more suiting for, say, a scouting operation than everyone at once. As such, Elsie Mormont says he would prefer to wait for Mance and his people to descend from the mountains and then fight them here on the fist. But why? <laughs> he says they couldn't hope for a better defensive position than the fist, and that's true north of the wall. But what about, you know, the wall? <laughs> Corrin's proposal to send in scouts to learn what power Mance seeks in the Frostfangs, that is a sensible and necessary move. That is something you should do while you're out here, because it's no good to retreat on the wall if Mance has something that can bring it crashing down around you. But after that work is done... I am not the military mind on the podcast, of course, but it seems insane to me that you choose to give battle at the fist instead of the wall. The wall is not only a much superior defensive position, it prevents you from being cut off from resources and messages to the south. The fist can be surrounded. Yeah, and it's actually even worse than you're putting it. Worse than being surrounded, you, and you brought this really well up when we were talking about, about John's concerns about being dismissed, surrounded, and without access to a source of fresh water. That means if Mance attacked, all he have to do is move his siege and picket lines past the stream and bam, Mormont's men die of thirst a week or two later, or they surrender. And the High Command notes that they can use the Fist of the First Men as a staging base to launch surprise attacks against Mance once he comes out of the Frostfangs. But like, what are you fucking doing lining the hill with torches, you fucking illiterates? I mean, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence here, but in the dark, with only ambient light around you, that line of torches is going to be really, is going to really stand out to anyone who has, like, say, the extremely rare gift, I don't know, extremely rare gift of eyesight. Eyesight. If you just look, you are going to see these torches from 20 miles away. My f God. Ugh. So, any hope of launching a surprise attack against Mance is severely diminished by Mormont's lack of light discipline. But the issues with the fist are deeper than the source of water, and how they're visible from 20 miles away. It goes back to the strategic reason for the Great Ranging, and why this mission is going foobar quick, fast, and in a hurry. Yeah, let's pause to remember why it is they were supposed to be here in the first place. What is the Great Ranging? The Great Ranging was supposed to be first and foremost about gathering information, because sending out individual ranging missions wasn't cutting it. That's what Mormont says to John. I mean to find out what's out there, because honestly, we're barely getting any, any accurate information back. Mormont took this many men not to give battle to Mance Raider, but in order to prevent them from being taken down as easily as individual raiding parties, as Waymar Royce and Othor and Jaff and Othor and, uh, and Jaffer Flowers. Yet here Mormont is preparing to give battle to Mance Raider, even though zombies tried to kill him in his sleep. Thorin Smallwood is sitting right there wearing Jeremy Riker's cloak, which he only has because a zombie killed Jeremy Riker. It's telling that this supernatural threat doesn't even get a mention in this council meeting. This is mission creep, the definition of taking your eye off the ball. Nor is there even a mention, by the way, of engaging in diplomacy with Mance in the face of this larger supernatural threat. Now, of course, the political culture of the Watch is such that the first person to propose such a move would be sticking their neck out, so no one does. That's the problem L.C. Snow will, will wrestle with in A Dance with Dragons. How to transform a culture whose roots go so deep that not even Apocalypse can pull them up. I think that L.C. Mormont is preparing to do battle at the Fist instead of falling back on the wall for the same reason he's talking about fighting Mance instead of the others, and it's the same reason John points out to himself, because he is a proud old man among younger men, who, as Tyrion notes, is afraid he's wasted his life, and so he wants to go out in a blaze of glory. He can't do that by sitting at the wall and waiting, even if that's the more sensible move. 
and unlike the others, he knows where Mance is and how to fight him, so he does. Just like Stannis decides to fight the Boltons because that's what he knows. For me, the, like, the point of the White Walkers is that they should galvanize all of humanity to work together, but humanity isn't that simple, even in the face of a threat like the others. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is one of this, another thing I love is getting to read your thoughts days in advance of everyone who gets to listen to them. Because let's be marinating awesome. them. So I decided to do a little research. That is, I you know did a quick couple of quick searches on a search of ice and fire. And I think you're spot on with the whole Gior Stannis comparison here. I mean, let's look back at Gior's back in the game in John's final chapters in the Game of Thrones and why he wants to go ranging in the first place. So he tells John, I will not sit here meekly, wait for the snows and the ice winds. We must know what is happening. This time the Night's Watch will ride in force against the king beyond the wall, the others and anything else that might be out there. This seems kind of clear cut to me. John needs to find out what Mance is up to, ride out against the others, realizes that a, that the smaller ranging parties he's been sending out, like Bench and Starks, are vanishing and then he decides to move out in force. But here in this chapter, it's all about Mance Raider and the Wildlings, all the while never mentioning the others who, you know, are certainly closer up here at the Fist than they were down, you know, at Castle Black and at the Wall. And that's kind of the same mentality as what happens when our king arrives, that is, namely Stannis, when he arrives at the Wall. Where Stannis, in a storm of swords, tells John, demons made of snow and ice and cold, says Stannis Baratheon, the ancient enemy, the only enemy that matters. It stirs the fucking heart, man. The only enemy that matters. Quite correct, King Stannis. But then in A Dance with Dragons... Does Stannis have second thoughts? As he says in John's fourth chapter in Dance Dragons, Lord Snow, attend me. I've lingered here in the hopes that the wildlings would be fool enough to mount another attack upon the wall. As they will not oblige me, it's time I dealt with my other foes. You know who Stannis didn't mention in that line above from John's fourth chapter? The only enemy that matters, demons made of snow and ice. I mean, did he forget about it or did he just kind of focus on something else here? <laughs> it's always, it, I mean, it just drives mm-hmm. me nuts. It's, it, it's good writing on George's part, but it drives me nuts that it's always the wildlings that feature as the main threat in the minds of these military leaders when truly the wildlings are men like us, as Gordon Haffin is going to put it later to John. And I wonder whether there's an element of just utter fucking fear and dread when it comes to the others for people as brave and gruff as Stannis and Gior Mormont that they kind of refuse to engage thinking about them and focus on the enemy who can be defeated. But I'm going to save a lot of those thoughts for A Storm of Swords and A Dance of Dragons. So there's lots of mission creep afoot, as you're pointing out, with Mormont, but and also with Stannis. But he hasn't totally lost focus on at least one of his original core tenets of the mission, that is namely finding Benjamin Stark, or rather having Benjamin Stark find them. Exactly. Credit where credit is due. Elsie Mormont is right that Benjen will be able to find them much easier than they can find him. And as a mentor, he does a great job of forcing John to reach that conclusion independently rather than just spoon feeding it to him. We are seeing the payoff to what Sam said in book one about how Mormont was grooming John for command by choosing him as his personal squire, because it means John is always around when the decisions are made, soaking everything in. Sure, John's only officially in the tent to hand everyone their wine. But Mormont wants him to learn, and tests him to make sure he is. John gets that this is how it works. That's why he offers to take food to Corrin when Corrin arrives over Dolorous Ed, because he wants to hear what's being said. And of course, he is the one Mormont ascends to fetch Corrin when Corrin shows up. Without that little interaction, Corrin wouldn't have ended up picking John to scout with him. So we are seeing that John having close physical access to the room in which decisions are made is actually having quite the effect on his burgeoning political career. For all Mormont's faults, and he has a lot, as we've been pointing out in this episode, he does do this one thing right, and that he doesn't always give John the correct answer. He just calls John to engage his reasoning and rationing ability and determine what he would do in the situation. And he asks for John's advice in order to kind of suss out his 
ability and skill to actually lead after Mormont is gone, which is coming very, very soon, as we're going to find out here in the, a little bit into A Storm of Swords. But, you know, Mormont is a father figure to John. And, you know, I, this is actually sad. This is, I had never realized this before. This scene from John's fifth chapter in A Clash of Kings is the last time that Jon Snow and Elsie Mormont are ever going to interact. Because afterwards, mm-hmm. John is going to head off with Corn Halfhand. Mormont is going to get fucking bushwhacked by the others on the Fist of the First Men. And then he is going to die in a mutiny at Craster's Keep. It It's a scene that now kind of fills me with a little bit of sadness looking at it in, in retrospect. But it does. Yeah, that, that last ahead. interaction is Mormont saying to John, "Yeah, I thought you would. Your your will would be to go." And he's very yeah. sad as he says it. And yep, that's the last interaction. That is quite brutal. Uh, it's it's brutal, but I think it does. John continuously thinks about Mormont and his example and his leadership throughout Storm and the Dance with Dragons. So it's not as though Mormont Mormont did tie, but at least his spirit lives on in the form of John. Regardless, the passing of one father figure to another father figure means that we get to have another father figure, Corin Halfhand, and man. Have I been excited about getting to this character here since probably <laughs> before we even started the podcast, for sure? I know he's a favorite of yours, and I like him a lot, too. At last, John's new dad arrives with his hundred men from the Shadow Tower. The hard heart of the Night's Watch is now gathered on the fist of the First Men. Corrin Halfhand is a legend, the most admired ranger in the Watch now that Benjen Stark is missing in action. He is pure discipline, both physically and mentally, a born leader of men. The detail that stands out to a first-time reader, of course, is the story of how he got his nickname, losing three fingers to a wildling's axe before blinding him with blood. This establishes Korn's most prominent character trait, his willingness to sacrifice anything, absolutely anything at all, to further the goals of the Night's Watch. I don't think it's an accident that he will go on to sacrifice three men in the Skirling Pass, Dalbridge, Eben, Eben, and himself, with Stonesnake's fate left ambiguous. Or you could say he sacrifices Dalbridge, Eben, and Stonesnake, leaving himself uh, with just John. Either way, I think it's, it's interesting he's sacrificing the same number of men as the number of fingers he sacrificed, because that's Korn's philosophy. It's fitting that as we go further north into unknown territory than ever before, we meet a ranger who seems to thrive in the unknown, to live there full time. Corrin's been ranging for so long, his black cloak is turning gray, separating him out from his fellow watchmen. He spent so much time up here that he has more in common with the wildlings he fights than with anyone south of the wall. Corrin's introduction reminds me of the introduction of Lietkines in Dune. He officially works for the Emperor, but in appearance and how he carries himself, he feels like more like one of the natives. In fact, he's described as having gone native. And this feeling is reinforced by how George writes Corrin in Mormont's tent. Corrin was seated cross-legged on the floor, his spine as straight as a spear. Candlelight flickered against the hard, flat planes of his cheek as he spoke. That's a very specific image. It reminds me so strongly of movies and TV shows I watched as a child of 80s, 90s pop culture, in which uh, a Native American man would sit around a fire telling tales with, like, the light flickering on his face and a recorder on the soundtrack. This is, you know, a very typical trope. And I think George is specifically nodding to it. Corrin is being framed as a shamanic figure, a storyteller with a deeper connection to the land and people around him than his fellow watchmen. And all of that is important because John's time with Corrin is all about challenging his perspective on the wildlings and forcing him to immerse himself in their culture right before he goes undercover among them. On reread, it's actually kind of a misdirection how George presents Corrin as the ultimate implacable enemy of the wildlings. Because in later John chapters, he will scorn Thorin Smallwood's bigotry, and he will think fondly and sadly of his old friend Mance. Mance, too, wears a watch cloak that looks different from the rest. Mance and Corrin are both outsiders, caught between the worlds of wildling and watch. 
The difference is that Mance's cloak with the red silk woven in embodies his embrace of color, music, wine, women, life. Corrin's cloak embodies his rejection of all of that in favor of duty. As John thinks to himself in his last chapter in this book, did Corrin ever have a wedding night? Maybe not, but Mance did. In other words, Corrin and Mance are outsiders on opposite ends of the spectrum. Their bond is rooted in their mutual rejection of what lies in between them. Corrin believes that you must understand your enemy before you can defeat them. So it is, it is fitting that he has uh, more intelligence on Mance than Elsie Mormont, I think. Uh, he, he got that intelligence, of course, by defeating Alfin Crowkiller, immediately establishing what a tough military leader he is. Yet, as John notes, Corrin looks grave, indicating that this intelligence he gathered reveals something no short-term military victory can overcome. John is curious to find out what that might be, and he follows this curi curiosity into the tent, and that fits the theme of temptation that stands out so strongly in A Clash of Kings. On a kind of a, a very minor level, John is enacting the same kind of temptation you see with Stannis and Melisandre, or with Arya and Jochen, Jojen and Bran. You're always, you know, following them forward to find out what you don't know. Your curiosity drives you on. And what Corrin's intelligence reveals is that, again, as always in A Clash of Kings, they are not inhabiting a purely political world, but a world in which politics and magic mix. Elsie Mormont looks at Mance's gathering in the Frostfangs purely in political terms, purely as a confederation of war chiefs, which will attempt to climb over the wall by normal means. And so in terms of the Watch's response, Elsie Mormont thinks only of patrols and manning abandoned castles. But Corrin is here to tell Mormont to stop fighting the last war. This is the age of wonder and terror. And Mance doesn't want to climb over the wall. He wants to break it. That is a revelation designed to grab the reader's attention, and we are primed to spend John's chapters going forward wondering what this quote-unquote power might be. We shouldn't pass over, however, the manner by which Corrin acquired this intelligence. Torture. Torture so intense that the wildling captive died from it. Corrin is John's guide not only to the harsh world of the Frostfangs, but the even harsher world of sacrificing your values, your comrades, and ultimately yourself in the name of duty. That's another meaning to Corrin's gray cloak. He is a morally gray man, a man who does some very questionable things in the name of his good ends. While there is much to admire in him, much for John to learn from him, there's the same question as with Arya and Jochen Hagar. Do we want our hero to grow up like this? Like Jochen, Corrin is a figure of death. He reminds Elsie Mormont that the Night's Watch wears black cloaks as built-in funeral shrouds, so if they drop dead on the spot in battle, you can just bury him right there and keep going. They are the walking dead, every bit as much as the zombies who serve the White Walkers. Again, you have John wondering if Ghost is digging up a grave in John 4, and then in John 5, I think it's no coincidence that George has Ed tell a story about drinking wine flavored by his suicidal brother's corpse. You know, Ed's stories are funny, but they tend to tie into the deeper, more serious themes going on in each chapter. It all fits the theme of death, the sense that the Night's Watch are all doomed. And the only choice left is how you face it. What do you do in the face of death? Who, who, what do you be? How do you behave? And that is the core of Corrin's Bushido-like philosophy, accepting the inevitability of one's death and thinking of one's life, as he puts it, as coin to be spent for the greater good. And finally, Corrin's gray cloak reminds us of the gray banner of House Stark. And just in case it didn't, Corrin's <laughs> first conversation with John is all about House Stark. This is not incidental. It is John's connection to the first man, emphasized by the dire wolf prowling at his side, that prompts Corrin to take John with him at chapter's end. As we will see in John's later chapters, 
Corrin appears to believe that the Starks are, quote, friends to the Watch, in large part because the Starks are connected to the magic of the First Men and the Children of the Forest. Corrin seems to be one of the people who understands that there must always be a Stark in Winterfell to hold the line against not only wildlings, but sorcery. It's interesting that Corrin puts his faith in the Starks more than any Southron king. Despite not being explicitly a Northman, he seems to understand why the Starks are so important. Now, I say things like appears to believe <laughs> and seems to understand because Corrin is not as direct as, say, Jojen Reed in terms of what he knows about the Age of Wonder and Terror. So on one hand, Corrin is kind of John's magical mentor in this book, right? Like Jojen, Jokin, Melisandre, and Quaithe and the other Clash of Kings storylines. I mean, Corrin talks about the wildlings seeking magic, bringing magic into this storyline explicitly. He understands that John is a warg. He knows what it means that Orel's eagle keeps following them in the Frostfangs. He's very familiar with this stuff. He's far more knowledgeable about and comfortable in this magical world than Elsie Mormont. But Corrin doesn't have any magic himself, and it's not his primary concern. Magic matters to Corrin in a military context. It is a tool our enemies know well. Its presence is a vital piece of intelligence that must be passed on. That's how he thinks about it. But for all Corrin is able to talk about sorcery and dreams and the trees having eyes, he still never brings up the others making the same mistake as Elsie Mormont. For all that he understands both magic and the wildlings better than the other senior officers, the former still hasn't changed how he handles the latter. And again, there's the Stannis comparison. Corrin is another hard military man with a handful of devoted followers who understands magic, takes him more seriously than the rest of his peers, is willing to sacrifice anything for his struggle. But ultimately, he just can't give up the war against other humans he's been waging for so long. That's all excellent points, man. I really appreciate you always talking through these kind of complex characters in a way that I think reinforces what George is presenting in the narrative. So, so well done as always, sir. I think, you know, we're, we're talking about father figures for John and we're talking about Elsie Mormont and how he kind of fails as a father figure, but he does present some good aspects for John. He teaches him something about leadership. Corrin, I think, was embedded in the narrative specifically because he ends up teaching John about the wildlings and about respecting your enemy, the kind of Bushido-like code that we see, as Steve Atwell has talked about specifically in his essays about A Clash of Kings and John's chapters. It's really telling to me that Corrin does not talk about the others, and that leads us to another father figure of John's, namely Mance Raider, who's going to be showing up at the start of A Storm of Swords in John's chapters. And also a little bit Ygritte as well, though she's not really much of a father figure. I kind of lost the metaphor there. That's okay. But <laughs> regardless is that all of these people are all kind of building up this leadership arc for John, starting with Elsie Mormont, moving on to Corrin Halfhand, on to Mance Raider, and then Stannis Baratheon himself in, in A Dance with Dragons. At the end of A Dance with Dragons, though, it's it's kind of unclear whether there's going to be any further father figures for Jon Snow. I think he's reached the pinnacle of his education as a leader and as a man of the Night's Watch, as the potential and probable king in the North, at least for a time. And now John is going to have to pick his own path going forward. And he's going to be hopefully taking the lessons he learned from Mormont, the good lessons at least, from Mormont, from Corrin Halfhand, from Mansraider, from Stan Sparathian, and then taking that and pushing forward in order to resist the coming advance of the others. You're your own dad now, Jon Snow. I do think that's where he's ending up. <laughs> so moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, obviously... The major groundwork being done here is for the zombie attack on the Fist of the First Men, which will kick off a storm of sores. And you can find foreshadowing for that apocalyptic disaster all over these chapters. The senior officers consider the Fist an ideal fortress, but John senses its weaknesses. Those weaknesses will pay off. John thinks about how anything could be creeping toward them out of the haunted forest, and boy will it ever. 
the one horn blast for Corrin at the start of John 5, and everyone waits in the silence for the second horn blast. Well, that's going to become three horn blasts for others by the time we get to the prologue to A Storm of Swords. I think while writing A Clash of Kings, George already knew that this zombie attack was going to be one of the crown jewels of the series, and so he goes all in on setting the mood for it in these chapters before we leave for a kind of like diversionary side quest in the Frostfangs. Right. I mean, we're not going to pick up with Elsie Mormon until the prologue for A Storm of Swords, so we're like... 40 chapters from our next visit with the Fist of the First Men. So George wants to really do the groundwork in order to build up that coming of the others here. So we have characters like Dywin smelling the cold. We have Ghost going nuts at the Fist of the First Men. We've got John thinking specifically about Athor and about the Whites coming up and how no one can really be sure what's out in the forest itself. Everyone's like, oh, I don't want to be out ranging tonight. All that is building up to that coming encounter between the others and the Night's Watch at the Fist of the First Men. And kind of speaking about some of those sorceress magical elements that are coming into play in A Clash of Kings, we're going to be learn much more about the, quote, power the Wildlings sought in the Frostfangs in A Storm of Swords. It's the Horn of Jorman, a.k.a. the Horn of Winter, which can supposedly bring down the wall. Mance Raider is going to claim that he found it, and Melisander then burns that horn in A Dance with Dragons. But Tormund in John's penultimate chapter in Dance of Dragons will claim that it was a fake and the true horn is still out there. I guess I guess the horn's just gone, man. It's just gone forever. We're never going to encounter it ever again in the narrative. Goodbye, horn. Oh, but of course, it's that small horn that John finds in these chapters. It's just a wonderful irony that the power Corrin is, talk- is talking about in John 5 is probably what John found <laughs> in John 4. With, with, without realizing it, they're talking about the same thing. But while that hasn't paid off yet, something that in that bundle that has paid off is the dragon glass. That pays off in the next book as Sam uses it to kill an other. In what might be the single most cathartic moment in A Song of Ice and Fire when Sam hears like his father scorning him in his head and John telling him he can do it and then he kills the White Walker the first time we see that done. That is that is a, a wonderfully cathartic moment at the end of a very bleak chapter. It is a bleak chapter, but it's a top five all-time chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire for mm-hmm. me. It's really amazing that same old chapter and yes when he plunges the dragon glass dagger into the other and the other kind of like melts in front of him it's extremely cathartic after like you've been spending the whole chapter hearing men dying behind samuel he can hear their screams as he's moving south to craster's keep it's really haunting horror amazing stuff but then we're on into uh on into sam like doing the good deed and and bringing down another which is the first and only time so far in the narrative that another has actually been brought down in the in the story so that's so so much fun so corn halfhand states that every king of the realm should hear news about the wildlings gathered and this is exactly what happens to the storm of swords as amon sends letters to every king in the war of the five kings but only one king responds the king who cares Ding! You didn't think we could work <laughs> another Stannis reference into this episode, did you? Oh, ye of little faith. We do it every week, folks. We know it uh, like we know our own skins at this point. So we always have a, we have Riot Watch in the King's Landing chapters in the Clash of Kings as George sets up the King's Landing riot to explode in Tyrion 9. And here we get Mutiny Watch. John witnesses Chet and company conspiring about getting off the Fist of First Men by any means necessary. They want to head south. They call the expedition the Old Bear's Folly. This, of course, feeds into what happens with Chet in the prologue to A Storm of Swords and later the Mutiny at Craster's Keep. This is a classic bit of George's threefold revelation where he sneaks in a reference here 
you know, if you're skimming, if you're a first-time reader, you might not pick up on what's going on with Chet, especially since John thinks to himself, oh, that was probably nothing. They're just spooked. It was just talk. And then you get the the next layer of it with Chet in the prologue where he's planning the mutiny in his POV, but then that just gets, like, sideswiped by the others showing up, and you might think, oh, you might just forget about it entirely or think that it's just been rendered moot. But then the mutiny finally happens in a completely different form of Craster's Keep when the leadership of the original mutiny is already dead. So I, I love how George uh, stretches that out over several books. It's great work. It's funny to me that John could have, like, forestalled the mutiny, could have, like, warned Elsie Mormont. But he's like, no, no, man, I'm not going to rat on my brothers of the Night's Watch. Even a person like Chet and Lark, who I absolutely despise. So did John inadvertently help to cause the mutiny, hashtag mutiny watch for the Night's Watch for Elsie Mormont? I mean, I'm not blaming John necessarily. But at the same time, Mormont has no idea what's coming when he reaches Craster's Keep in Samuel's second chapter in The Storm of Swords until it's way, way too late. No, that's a good point. You know, it's the classic thing where good disarms itself. John cares about being a brother, being a comrade, caring about these men more than they care about him. So he kind of leaves himself open. But also Mormont, like, he still thinks he can order the mutineers around after they've already killed Craster and are rebelling to his face. So I got to think, even if John directly told him that they were planning a rebellion, I don't know if he'd even believe it because Mormont really wants to believe in the Night's Watch to the very, very end. Ah, it's so tragic that was downfall of believing in the Night's Watch and having the same institution that he believes in ending up killing him. That's oh, very George R. Martin and the irony that he loves to embed into the narrative. Final little bit of foreshadowing here is that Mormont and Corrin talk about manning the abandoned castles of Greyguard and Longbarrow with recruits that Alistair Thorne is bringing back from King's Landing in order to hold the wall against the wildlings. Ironically, in A Dance with Dragons, Elsie, Jon Snow will have these castles manned and rebuilt by wildlings with a few Night's Watchmen mixed in. So it's a kind of nice little ironic kind of turn back that we have George integrating here with the wildlings being the ones who are manning the castles that Elsie Marmot wanted to ban to prevent the wildlings from crossing the wall. And hopefully that's going to hold the wall against the others. It's not. I'm afraid it's not going to happen. I'm sorry to say. It's that, that generational change in policy, same as John thinks about uh, the gift and how Ned wanted to settle it, but he would have balked settling with wildlings. So John has to take all these wistful plans of his father's figures and put them into reality, but with people that his father figures don't see as people. John is the one who has to get past that bigotry and, and, and bridge that cultural divide. Mm-hmm. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving to the discussion portion of the episode here, folks. We've been building up to this one for quite some time. You knew we were going to fight about it. <laughs> Well done, Jeff. You remember, Thank you. I remember, you remember yeah, your so, music cue. Yeah. Oh, bless you, sir. <laughs> so we have the bundle that gets found by John and Ghost at the end of John 4. And it immediately raises the question of who left it. And you'll be surprised to learn this is one of the very few things that Jeff and I disagree about. Yes, we are definitely going to disagree about who actually left the bundle. Although we may find some common round at the end of our little debate so you know i guess now we kind of rip our shirts off and kind of like Uh i'm gonna come through the camera you wish yeah yeah so why don't you give me your wrong case for why it was not why it was benjen stark who left the bundle at the fist of the first men so this isn't really about direct evidence for me so much as it's just kind of a general feeling around it like benjen comes up multiple times in this in these chapters and it seems weird for me to, to have that there if it doesn't tie into what's happening in these chapters at all, just in terms of conservation of narrative detail. That seems strange to me. And if it's not him, he's contributed basically nothing to the story so far <laughs> at all. And this might be the case. It just feels off to me that this really important badass who's in-house Stark, who's a great ranger, has been like MIA beyond the wall and has just had no impact on the plot whatsoever. Hmm. 
As for the Night's Watch cloak, I think it's interesting that, you know, Benjen might be trying to ditch the cloak to increase his chances of surviving in wildling territory. Remember what John said in Book 1 about how a man wearing black would be viewed with cold suspicion in every village south of the Wall? Well, same with every village north of the Wall, too. As Mormont says, Benjen would know that the Watch would be kind of moving along this, this familiar path. I think he would know that the Watch would make for the Fist. It's a sensible place to leave a dead drop. Benjen is First Ranger, after all. He is a competent, devoted Watchman. And if the fate of Othor and, and Jay for Flowers is any indication, he came up against the White Walkers. In those circumstances, I think he would devote himself to stopping the true enemy. I don't think he would make the same mission creep mistake as Elsie Mormont. And I think that's why he had the horn and the dragonglass there. I think he got to that stuff ahead of both Mance and the White Walkers. Meanwhile, if you look at Cold Hands, he still has his cloak. Hmm. Now, that's not to say he couldn't have taken it off a corpse, of course. We will see him kill some Night's Watchmen uh, in, a, in a dance with dragons, so he could have certainly taken the cloak off, off a previously dead Watchman. And I do think that the magical angle with Ghost's involvement in finding the bundle is the best evidence that it was actually Blood Raven via Cold Hands or some, something involving the magical side of the plot and not Benjen, because Benjen's not really connected to that stuff. Then again, maybe he is now. If Benjen did run afoul of the White Walkers, he might now be directly swept up in Blood Raven side of things, and that's why he knows about stuff like Dragonglass and the Horn of Winter. I mean, this is why a lot of people were convinced that Cold Hands is Benjen, right? Because it ties all this together. It would, it would resolve this to Lemon neatly. But George has said otherwise, so we are left to wonder. Now, make the case for why I'm full of shit, sir. Oh, I'm not going to make the case that you're full of shit. I think you make excellent points about why Benjen could have been the person who left the bundle at the Fist of the First Men. But I'm going to argue a case that might seem a little bit tinfoil at, at first, which is that Cold Hands left the bundle there. Let's talk first about the motive, about why Cold Hands could possibly want to do this. So we know from A Dance with Dragons that Cold Hands is a servant of Blood Ravens, or perhaps even a white entirely controlled by Blood Raven himself. When we encounter the three-eyed crow in A Dance with Dragons, he seems quite focused on the threat of the apocalypse posed by the others. So you're welcome to go back a few years ago, but I wrote an essay series, which I'll link in the show notes for our patrons, called The Race to Get the Horn South, in which I argued that Bloodraven was trying to get the Horn of Jorman south of the Wall to prevent the others from getting hold of the Horn to bring the Wall down. And Cold Hands cannot progress through the Walls, we find out in Brand's, or excuse me, in, yeah, in Brand's final chapter in A Storm of Swords, so he needs some sort of human element to do that. So my theory is that Blood Raven sent Cold Hands with the Horn and Dragonglass to the Fist of the First Men in hopes that the Night's Watch might eventually get the south, get south of the Wall and get the Horn to safety. He can't really give to Mance Raider because Mance Raider might want to bring down the Wall itself. So that's the bare bones background and reasoning of why Cold Hands would be involved at all. Let's talk about the specific evidence for Cold Hands in this these two chapters. As soon as the Night's Watch reaches the Fist of the First Men, Ghost starts acting strangely. He runs away three times from John at the start of John's fourth chapter, and when they arrive at the ring for itself, John notes Ghost balked again. He padded forward warily to sniff at the gap in the stones and then retreated as if he did not like what he'd smelled. Then he takes John on a long chase at the end of John 4 through the hill until he comes onto the buried treasure. No, not Molestown, the actual buried treasure, the, the cache of dragon class. So Ghost doesn't like what he smells in and around the fists of the first men and acts kind of weird. Where have we seen this before? Why, back in the Game of Thrones, John 7, where, where the quote is, When he woke, his legs says John's were stiff and cramped and the candle had long since burned out. Ghost stood on his hind legs, scrabbling at the door. John was startled to see how tall he'd grown. Ghost. What is it? He called softly. The dire turned. The direwolf turned his head and looked down at him, baring his fangs in a silent snarl. Has he gone mad? John wondered. And what was it that John? What was it that was driving ghosts mad back in a Game of Thrones? John seven. Why it was smelling an undead Other. 
John sums up Ghost in this chapter when he thinks the direwolf circled the fire, sniffing John, sniffing the wind, never still. It did not seem as if he were after meat right now. When the dead men came walking, Ghost knew he woke me, warned me. So let's also stay on this whole smelling business, right? So back when John and Sam went to the Groove of Werewoods back in a Game of Thrones, John 6, Dywin and his magical nose makes its first appearance in the narrative, where Dywin says, best we be starting back, my lord, he said to Bowen Marsh. Dark's fallen and there's something in the smell of the, what, of the night that I mislike. And then shortly thereafter, Ghost turns up with Jafer Flowers' hand, and then they find the bodies of Othor and Jafer. And then here in John fourth, in John's fourth chapter in the Clash of Kings, we get Dywin's magical nose coming into play again. What is it you smell, Dywood asked Grant. The forester sucked on a spoon a moment. He had taken out his teeth. His face was, le- his face was leathery and wrinkled. His hands gnarled his old roots. Uh, seems to me it smells, well, cold. Your head's as wood as your teeth, Hake told him. There's no smell to cold. And then John clarifies things. There is. There's a smell to cold, thought John. Remembering the night in the Lord Commander's chambers. It smells like death. So knowing that Ghost and Dywin could both smell whites, that Ghost acts up when the undead are about, let's turn to Cold Hands and do a real quick refresher, because it's been a little while since we've actually never encountered him in the nerf. We will encounter him in a storm of swords, but let's do a quick refresher on a few points we know about Cold Hands. And note how, one, he's a former, knight of the men, he was a former man of the Night's Watch, presently undead. He died a, quote, long time ago, according to the Children of the Forest. He's in service to the Three-Eyed Crow, and he, this is important. He has the smell of cold, blood, and death on him, as Brand notes. And then finally, Bran's direwolf summer does not like that smell of cold blood and death on cold hands. And in my mind, a lot of those factors line up with finding the cash concealed within a Night's Watch cloak, to Ghost going nuts around the fist, to die when a ghost probably smelling an undead person near the fist of the first man. I think my largest objection to Benjen playing the cash is that if it was Benjen, why wouldn't he just come up to the fist of the first man and deliver the goods and be like, here's here's the here's the cash, guys, you know, take care of this. I I I found it. It's probably important. We should, uh, you know, get it south of the wall. And this is something that John thinks about directly in, in, in John's fifth chapter. The cloak he had found beneath the fist could well have belonged to his uncle or one of his men. Even the old bear admitted as much. Though why they would have buried it there, wrapped around the cache of dragon glass, no one could say. So to me, it makes sense that Cold Hands couldn't present himself to the Night's Watch, given that they probably, you know, try to fucking light him on fire on the spot, it's that whole undead thing, and why the cash was buried near the fist rather than delivered directly to Mormont. And that brings me to an elegant but potential solution. So we've all, we've debated now, I'm putting my shirt back on, we're, we're done fighting here. So my potential solution that kind of takes both of our sides and joins them together is that George R. R. Martin, in his ever-guarding style, had it in mind that Benjen was actually cold hands while he was writing A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. But then he decided that he had left himself a lot of wiggle room by not positively identifying Cold Hands. And somewhere between A Storm of Swords, written in 2000, and A Dance with Dragons, published in 2011, George R. R. Martin decided that he had a better idea for what Bench was up to or had a more interesting idea on the identity of Cold Hands. So is that a possibility as what could be linking our two ideas together that George originally had Cold Hands as Bench and yet eventually decide that Cold Hands was not mentioned and had a better idea for the for the identity of Cold Hands. You make a very convincing case. And I mean certainly George likes leaving his his options open in that regard. Like, you know, that that singer at the Winterfell feast back in book one, he never identified him by name. So if George later wanted that to be Mance, it can be Mance. And the same thing might be going on here, and that's why there's a slight incongruity here. I do say though, 
you were convincing me as you were going there. You were you laid it out very convincingly step by step in terms of the smell and how that's associated with the old god stuff and with corpses and all that does speak to cold hands. And, you know, part of me when you know, you bring up the question of why doesn't Benjamin just give it to them? And part of me is just like, well, because it's a story. <laughs> if he, then if he does that, there's that's no true, story. Yeah. But no, you you make you make a good point, and maybe Benjamin couldn't do that because he's on the run. Maybe he was being tracked, and he's like, "I got to drop this off now, lead them off in another way." But you know, that's completely fanfic on my part. That could be a case. It's, it's a le- it's a legit point though that you know Benjamin could just walk back up to the Night's Watch, whereas Cold Hands really can't because as soon as they see him, they'd be like, "What is that? Kill it with fire." <laughs> The aura of magic around it definitely points in the cold hands direction. The cloak itself, for me, kind of kind of indicates Benjamin. And if it's not Benjamin, I wonder what he's up to. And that, that's what makes me lean towards your kind of uh, in-between solution where George may have changed ships in midstream, so to speak, here. Yeah. So it's it's possible that it was Benjamin. And I and I do like a lot of the things. You, you do bring up a, a great point that Benjamin is brought up specifically in this narrative multiple times. It's like, Benjamin will follow the, the trail. Benjamin is going to be here. Benjamin is alive. He will follow us here. But there's also a possibility, too, that he is undead as well just like cold hands it might not be that mm-hmm. cold hands is the only servant of blood raven at this point in the story so see we didn't fight that much after <laughs> all kids we're staying together for christmas i promise so i think that a route wraps us up for this episode on the clash of kings john four and five as always if you have the chance please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud podbean anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beavish on Twitter, Brendan Beavish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of iceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerval, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, and Septon Merryful Head Affair. Thank you very much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely, guys and gals and everyone else. Thank you so, so very much for supporting us. We really, really appreciate it. So, join us next week as we return again to Winterfell for Brand 5. Again, we are not going with the published order. We are going to Brand's fifth chapter, and we are going to be talking about Catelyn in the month of April, in which Jojen digs deeper into prophecy and the heavy price Brand's going to have to pay along the way to destiny. And we meet Reek, servant <laughs> to the Bastard of Bolton, who was built up as a major villain, but is now suddenly, seemingly, been killed off screen. Nothing suspicious there. Crisis averted, guys. The Bolton threat <laughs> has been just I averted. I guess that's that. 